So I'm going to talk about something that's serious business in the Brophy home, perhaps less serious in yours. I'm going to talk about mac and cheese, which is a dish that we all delight in. Um, the, the mac and cheese we have most often comes from the box, the Kraft mac and cheese with the powdered cheese product and the noodles and the butter. My kids love that stuff. For me, though, I grew up on my mom's homemade mac and cheese, and it would often come with something like a steak. And I have memories tied up with that with my parents, with growing up and eating that every week, maybe too much. And so when we have the box mac and cheese, I say, this is okay, this is pretty good. It's butter, it's cheese, but it's not as good as what I remember. It's not as good as that ultimate mac and cheese. And in the same way, what we see today in our text is that the tabernacle that we're going to see built and the Lord filling it with his presence, it's pointing to that greater tabernacle at the end of all things when God's people dwells with him forever. So from this text, I'm going to argue the following. It's an exhortation, kind of a command for us to consider as we walk through this text. And it's simply this, trust the Lord and live with him forever. Trust the Lord and live with him forever. And in this story, in this series of chapters from Exodus 35 through 40, we're going to see kind of three broad points underneath of that. First, all is forgiven. All is forgiven. Second, the Lord dwells with his people. And finally, the tabernacle is just a taste of the Lord's future presence with his people. The tabernacle is just a taste of the Lord's future presence with his people. So let's start with all is forgiven, and we see this in chapter 35. And who needs to be forgiven? Who am I talking, who am I talking about? So if you weren't with us last week, uh, the, the last two weeks, what we talked about was Israel's rebellion and creating the golden calf to worship while Moses was up on Mount Sinai. So you see Israel rebels. And then you see that Moses mediates with the Lord kind of trying to make atonement for their sin and their rebellion. And you see the Lord restore and renew the covenant with his people. So you see this, Israel rebels, Moses mediates, and the Lord accepts that mediation, and then the Lord renews his covenant with Israel. So we see that now all is forgiven, and we'll, we'll read Exodus 35, 1 through 10. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, these are the things the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days' work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins and goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting and for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. So 
again, we saw Israel's rebellion, Moses' mediation, and the Lord's restoration. And I'm, what I'm saying is what we see now is that all is forgiven. How do we know? How do we know that Israel is now truly right with the Lord, at least in the Lord's eyes? Well, first, in this text, we see that the Sabbath regulations are restated. We talked about this earlier in Exodus, and they're restated almost word for word. It seems somewhat odd. Okay, why are we restating Sabbath regulations here? And it's because it's a sign, an ongoing sign, of the Lord's covenant relationship with his people. So what are one of the things that marks Israel as God's people? Well, every Sabbath, they come together to worship the Lord. And then we see the work on the tabernacle begins without qualification. The tabernacle is the, the physical structure that Israel builds. The Lord will come and his glory will be present in it. This is, what, this is how the Lord dwells among his people. And he gives great instruction for it. And the, the preparation and the beginning of the construction of the tabernacle begins without change, without qualification. It's going to, as it was before Israel's lack of faithfulness, faithfulness, so it will be after now that the Lord has renewed his covenant with those people. And so there's, there's no withholding of relationship by God to his people. And I think there's an implication for us about forgiveness. You see here, the Lord forgives. He foregoes the ultimate punishment for Israel and their rebellion. Now, there is some punishment, but in truth, the entire nation is, is worthy of destruction at this point, and he forgoes the fullness of that punishment. And so he forgives, but he also restores. He restores relationship with him. There's no withholding. There's no residual bitterness on the Lord's part. He goes right back to the covenant renewal. And so for us, we are also called to forgive. And when possible, to restore the relationship to what it was before the break in relationship. Now, I'm going to caveat this. There are circumstances in this world where the sin against someone, like things like physical abuse or other dramatic, intense, painful, unsafe uh, sin, where, where restoration can't happen. However, the Lord gives us a pattern here of forgiveness. We forgive, we, we forego the punishment that a sin could incur, and we work towards restoration of the relationship where possible. And so if you're here, and there's someone that you have forgiven, but you just don't want to restore that relationship, I think the Lord is, would press on you a bit to consider that sort of reconciliation, a restoration of the relationship from before the break, before the sin. We also see a return to the Lord's regular pattern of communication with his people. Plainly spoken, he speaks through Moses. He's communicating through Moses. The Lord communicates to Moses, and then Moses delivers those instructions to the Israelites. And so the pattern of communication that happened before the sin continues again. Nothing has changed. The Lord goes back to the way their relationship was. And the people, for their part, respond faithfully and generously. 
You see, we, when we talked about the covenant renewal, the, the, the parts of that, broadly speaking, we see the Lord promises to go with them. His presence will go with them. And then he promises physical blessing in the land and prosperity and defense from his enemies, of Israel's enemies. He will take care of them. Israel's responsibilities was to remove false worship, honor and remember the Lord, and worship him. So there's, there's parts on both sides. And here we see that Israel is responding rightly. They're upholding their part of the covenant. They're, they're giving generously to the work of the tabernacle. And so, again, we're seeing this element, this repeating of the covenant is renewed. The relationship is restored. From The Lord sees them as he did, and the people are responding well. And the work on the, on the tabernacle continues. So there's no changing of the tabernacle. There's no adjustment to it. The Lord prepares and equips the people for, the, for this construction. He, he cites two people in particular who are going to lead the physical construction of the tabernacle. This is found in chapter 35, verses 30 through 30. Uh, chapter 35, verses 30 through chapter 36, verse 1, which says this, Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. He has filled with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach, both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. So the Lord is moving forward in their covenant relationship together, and he helps equip the people to build the tabernacle. He's set aside two people in particular and fills them with his spirit for the work that's to be done, intricate work, beautiful work. And this points to a theological truth for us, which is simply this. God uses means. In plain English, God works with us and through us to accomplish his purposes. So here, in building the tabernacle, he pulls some Israelites aside and equips them specifically for the work, and he uses them to build the tabernacle that he intends to indwell. Now, does God need human hands to do anything on his behalf? Of course not. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. But in his providential wisdom and goodness, he uses means, often human means, people, to accomplish his goals. And so as we try to apply this theological truth, we ought to remember that the Lord uses means. So when we're in the church, when we're in our places of work, when we think about the, the works of goodness that the Lord has prepared for us beforehand, we think, you know, whether that's doing justice or mercy or evangelism, we ought to remember that the Lord uses means, and that means us. And it's not just pastors or deacons or super mature Christians, it's, it's all of God's people. Even in this text here, it's not just the two people that he set apart. 
It's everyone who has a desire to do the work, which we'll see later in the text. And it's not just on Sundays. It's not just in the context of the gathered church. It's as we scatter in a variety of places. The Lord is always working, and he's using his people to do that. I think there's a second less important implication, but an implication nonetheless here. And I think we see this in the ornateness and the care given to the work. It's that God cares about excellence at work. Colossians 3.23-24 through 24 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now, this text is not directly it's not directly about us and our places of work, right? This is about the Lord specifically setting aside his people to build the tabernacle. But they do so with excellence. And Christians, as we're in our workplaces, we too ought to work to the glory of God, not for human masters, but ultimately because we know our work is a reflection of our God. So we ought to pursue excellence. Tim Keller was once asked about work and he kind of answered with, well, what, is a, what does a Christian janitor look like? What is a Christian way of doing janitorial work? He said, it's a place where the floors are very clean, as clean as they possibly could be. Meaning that a, a janitor who's glorifying the Lord in his labors is going to do the best he can at the task in front of him. So I think this is a, an implication for us that as anything we put our hands to, we ought to work with our true master in mind, the Lord not our boss or anyone else, but rather him and what we do as a reflection on him. So we see that all is forgiven. The Lord continues for preparation with the tabernacle, sets aside people to do the work. The people respond well by giving lots of yeah, precious materials, jewels, all sorts of things to build the tabernacle and then the construction continues. In verse, basically, chapters 36 through 39, we see a series of things that are created for the tabernacle. I'll read uh, 36, verses 2 through 7. This is kind of the process by which this starts to happen. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab, and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come do the work, and they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning, so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task to the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. So we see again that the, the people are responding faithfully, and it's, it's not just that they're bringing materials, it's the, they're, everyone who wants to work on the tabernacle, whose heart calls them, their, want, makes their desires to work, they all come. They're all a part of it. And we see all these intricate details of the various parts of the tabernacle, the lampstand, the veil, the ark, the table, and the priestly garments. All of these things are done with precious materials, almost invaluable materials in the context of the time. And so a natural question for me is, as I read this, well, like, well, why so much opulence? Why so much wealth invested into the tabernacle? 
And I think it's that way because the tabernacle is pointing to a heavenly reality that we can't see in, in perfection in this world. It's pointing to the glory of God in heaven where he fills all things and we can't even visualize his glory. We can't, can't see it. In fact, we learned previously that to look on the face of God is for us as mortals would mean instant death. So this tabernacle, this imaging of what's going on in heaven is using precious materials to get at, to point at the preciousness and the beauty of God. And so the work continues apace until chapter 40 and verses 1 through 33, we see that the construction is completed. I won't read all of that, but I'll read a bit. Verses 1 and 2 say, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. Skip down to verses 16 through 17. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month of the second year, the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. And then skip down to verse 32 to 33. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. You see that last line, so Moses finished the work. There's echoes of the creation narrative here. And I... I think this points to the reality that the author of Exodus wants us to think of God's creation in Genesis as, as the people work on the tabernacle here. And I, one of the reasons, there's many reasons why, but the one that struck me as I prepared this text is that God is always doing this kind of work. He is creating and recreating. He is fixing what's been broken by sin. He's restoring, and this is a pattern that we see the Lord do again and again of renewing and restoring what's been broken by sin. So at this point, we see that the preparation has happened. The tabernacle has been built. It is finished. It is there. They've built the thing to the specifications of the Lord. As the text says, everything the Lord commanded, Moses does through means, through people. And so the physical structure has been created. But the Lord is not there yet. I think it's important for us to realize the Lord isn't at the beck and call of the Israelites. Oh, if they build the tabernacle, like he instantly must come. Rather, he comes of his own, because of his own promises, because of his own promise to the people of Israel, his own covenant renewal with them. And so a lesson for us as we consider this is we can do all sorts of things that the Lord has commanded, but we we can't demand anything of the sovereign king of the universe. Our desire to do good works on his behalf needs to come from our love and worship of him, not because we want to try and put him in our debt in some sort of way. But the Lord keeps his promise. He is going to dwell among them. And this is what we see in chapter 40, verses 34 through 38. The Lord dwells with his people. This is what the text says. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night. 
in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So here we see the consummation. All this work has happened, and the Lord comes down. His glory fills the tabernacle. He's coming down to be amongst his people. So when Moses mediated for the sin of Israel, it was to ensure that the Lord would continue on with them. And he, he does. And the visual representation of this is fire and cloud over the tabernacle, which is not the Lord. It's not even a full picture of the glory of the Lord, but it's a visible symbol, picture of who he is in his glory. And I think it's important for us to reflect a bit on what tabernacles are. Uh, Pastor Bill covered this a couple weeks ago, but I think it's, as we think about tabernacle, it's important to think about kind of a biblical theology of tabernacle, which we're using that word a lot, but what does that mean? It's when the Lord comes together with his people. There's five, five places broadly where we see tabernacling. We see the Lord coming together with his people. The first is in the garden, Ab and Eve, walk in the garden, they talk to God, they walk and talk with him. And then second, tabernacle temple, which is where we are here. Israel's building the tabernacle, the Lord has filled it with his glory. Later, the more permanent version of the tabernacle will be the temple. This is old covenant Israel, uh, that the Lord is dwelling with them in these physical locations. The third tabernacle, broadly speaking, that we see in scripture is Christ in the flesh, so this is God come down from heaven who lives as a human being, living a perfect, sinless life. This is God walking with his people, walking among men. Fourth is the church. So when we put place, when the Christian, when a per, yeah, person places their faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells them. Our bodies are called temples of the living God because the Holy Spirit has come to live and reside in us again. The dwelling place of God is with man, this coming together, this tabernacling, if that is a word. And then finally, at the end of all things, the new heavens and the new earth, where God will live with his people in perfect unity for all eternity. And today, we're thinking a lot about this second tabernacle, this physical structure that Israel builds according to the design of God so that the Lord can fill it with his glory. But where we are, Emmanuel Baptist Church, like in the, the story of redemptive history, is we're, we're in that fourth tabernacle, the church. And so I think there's some implications for us as we think about, as we think about tabernacling in the, in the age that we're in, in the church age. What, what, are, some, what are some things? How do, we, how do you apply something like the tabernacle? It's a tough question. But I think there's two things for us to consider and I'm sure that's not exhaustive, but the two that struck me in preparation this week. And the first is that the tabernacle was a place of worship. And this is why we, as individual Christians, come together every Sunday, corporately, as the church. I think there's a, I, if you're like me, there's a temptation to think of church as something we have to do. It's, you know, sometimes my attention wanders during a sermon. Maybe that's happening right now. Um, there, there's a sense in which church becomes an obligation or you know, something that we just do because it's part of our life. But there's a reality that what we do here is a preview of eternity. This is where heaven and earth meet. This is a place where 
the Lord is lifted up as king of the universe where we worship him and proclaim the truth that he wants to redeem a people unto himself. That's what we're doing here corporately as a body. Because God has come to dwell in his people as individuals and then we come together as a people to worship him. This is a, a foretaste of eternity for the Christian and it shouldn't be a matter of checking the box that that's a natural temptation for all of us, but rather something we rejoice in. Our gathering together worships and glorifies the Lord. We're tabernacling. And we're recreated by something far more valuable than jewels and precious metals. It's not, it's not a, a physical structure that, that binds us to the Lord or brings us together. It's the blood of Christ the power of the Holy Spirit, something far more precious than gold or silver or diamonds. You see, for us to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, to become living temples of God, we had to be made holy because we sinned and we fell short of the glory of God. And so in order to make us holy, God sent Christ to live that holy, perfect life, and then give his life as a sacrifice for us. And we only need to turn in faith and repentance to have that tabernacling with him now and forever. So knowing that our very selves are temples of the living God, this should also reframe the way that we think about sin. 1 Corinthians 6, 18-20 says, Flee from all sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I think when I read this text, because of the, perhaps the cultural context we're in, I immediately think about sexual immorality. That's the that tends to be a big blinking light. But I actually think the more shocking part of this verse is that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, of the living God within us. Like that is a truth that should stun us. We are temples to the Holy God. He is living with us. He is tabernacling with us. And because of that, we are made holy. And holy things ought not be used for profane things. Like even... Even people who don't know the Lord refer to churches and the land that churches are on as holy ground, right? See this in movies all the time. Vampires can't go into the church or whatever. There's a sacredness to the, to the church, that the, the property that is respected, even culturally. The reality is, is that the church is not a building, not this facility, not this land. The church is a people. You and me, if you are in Christ. And so we ought not use the temple of the living God for profane things. That's not what we're for. And there's a ton of lies that our culture tells us about our bodies. Do what feels good. You do you. That's not, that ought not be the guiding principle for how we use our bodies, but rather, how can I use this physical existence to glorify God? 
There are a few things more mysterious and more glorious than the unity between Christ and his people. It should transform how we think about our physical selves. And it's also why the tabernacle in Exodus is just a foretaste. So for the Israelites, all is forgiven after the golden calf. We see that through the preparation and completion of the work. And we see it because God dwells with his people because the Lord descended and fills the tabernacle. But the tabernacle is just a foretaste, just a picture, at least in this text. Because it's similar to the way I think of, of, yeah, of like a marital relationship. In the sense of like, when we're dating, there is a level of intimacy between a man and a woman as they date that isn't the same as the day that they walk down the aisle in marriage. And it isn't the same as a loving, faithful couple who's been together married for 40-some-odd years. There's a deepening of that covenant relationship. And in the same way, in a similar way, this this tabernacle that we see built here is a a pointing to, a a preparation for the ultimate tabernacle at the end of all things. And there are, there are little indications to us here in the text that this is, this is not the ultimate thing. This is not the perfect tabernacle. There's few indications. The first is Exodus 40:35, And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. We actually see this again in 1 Kings 8, 9 through 11, when the temple is dedicated to the Lord. It says this, There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. You see, Moses, God's agent of reconciliation with his people, can't enter because of the glory of the Lord. This is the same Moses that looked on the Lord face-to-face and had to veil his face because of his reflected glory. The same Moses who was used by the Lord to atone for, mediate between Israel and himself. And as we said, all is forgiven. This isn't about punishment of sin. It's rather that Moses can't go into the tabernacle without sacrifice. You see, what happens next after Exodus is the book of Leviticus. All of Leviticus has to happen before Moses enters in to the tabernacle. If you know Leviticus at all, you'll know that it's full of a lot of sacrifice, of blood to cover for sin, a lot of ceremonial cleansing to make ourselves clean from sin. Again and again, it is a a point. The point of the book is that God's people have to be holy because God is holy. That sacrifice, that system has to happen before Moses can enter in to the tabernacle. But these sacrifices are temporary and imperfect. They don't permanently pay for the people's sins, and the people's sin comes quickly. For the Israelites, as soon as Numbers 11, we see the people complain and rebel against the Lord. If you want to go forward to the temple in Israelite, in the temple in Solomon's reign, Solomon, at the end of his very life, is rebellious and idolatrous. And after he dies, the kingdom of Israel goes straight downhill. So even though there's a sacrificial system in place, they aren't perfect and they aren't permanent. This points to the need for a greater and better sacrifice. We talked previously about God accepting Moses' mediation based on the promises he had made to Israel. 
but also on the ultimate promise of Christ. You see, the Lord knew in his plan of redemption that he would offer a perfect sacrifice to be the thing that covers his people's sin. This is Christ, the perfect spotless lamb. Another thing that kind of hints at the, the, the incompleteness or the, the lack of perfection here is Exodus 40, 43, which says, And you shall put in the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. So we've heard a lot of language about veils. We talk about Moses veiling his face to hide the glory of God from the Israelites. Paul picks this up in 2 Corinthians but that veil is there between the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, and his people. But that veil comes down. Matthew 27, 50 through 51 says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. You see, it's Christ that tears the veil down. The dividing line between the holy God and his unholy people is perfectly covered by Christ. He is the sacrifice that removes the veil. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 talks about the new vision we have. It says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, eternity, face to face. For now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I have been fully known. This vision of God, the ability to see him face to face in eternity, is because of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, because of his splitting of the veil. None of this is possible without that perfect sacrifice. So the call to us is to trust the Lord and live with him forever. All is forgiven. The Israelites through Moses, we see that all is forgiven. Their covenant is renewed. But for the Christian, all is forgiven through Christ. No matter who you are or what you've done, where you come from, Christ renews you, makes you new, makes possible forgiveness. The Lord dwells with his people. In Exodus, we see this through the tabernacle. The Lord comes down and inhabits the tabernacle. But for the Christian, it's through the Holy Spirit living in us. The tabernacle is just a taste of the Lord's future presence with his people. For the Israelites, they see a pillar of cloud and fire, but for the Christian, we will see the face of God directly through all eternity. Revelation 22, 1-5 says it this way, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river. The tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer, will be the, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. See, through Christ, the veil is torn. And so while Israel got a picture of the Lord's presence, for the Christian, we will see him forever in his fullness. That is what's available to any who call on the name of Christ. And it's in his name that we're going to pray.